Mm-hmm. I tell all of my students today, go and borrow someone else's business card for five or 10 years, pick up some skills, and then go out and test it on yourself. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co-Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. So my question to you is, Are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we Go through that, and then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this, and on to the show. On today's show, I'm very pleased to introduce Cedric Bobo. Cedric is the founder of Project Destined, a now national program that uh, inspires young, primarily African-American and Latino students in high school to learn about the real estate business from a very hands-on, practical way that Cedric talks about in the interview. Cedric came from uh, very uh, humble origins in uh, Mississippi. Then his mother moved to Memphis, Tennessee when he was little, joined Federal Express, and he learned a little bit about the value of entrepreneurship, seeing Federal Express at its origins through his mother's friends and influences that he'd learned as a child. His mother was very intense on education, too, and so he ended up attending the University of Tennessee and getting an engineering degree there, and he took internships, first at Harvard for one summer, and then to Oxford for another full year of study in England. So that experience broadened his his view of the world considerably. He then went on and to go to work on Wall Street in investment banking and uh, learned a little bit then and then went on from there to Harvard Business School and learned the private equity business and understanding what that is and ended up going to London for a year with Credit Suisse and then finally joining Carlisle, where he rose to become partner at Carlisle after 10 years there, not in real estate, but in uh, in private equity. 
But after about 10 years, he decided the entrepreneurial itch was too much, and he was inspired by a film he saw in Detroit about a young man who had a choice to make between going good and going into architecture or going bad, and it was a depiction of both ways. And he was so inspired by that, he decided that with his interest in investing, he decided to start his company, Project Destined. And the story is... uh, outstanding in its growth. So without further ado, please enjoy this uh, wide-ranging conversation with Cedric Bobo. Thank you uh, very much, Cedric, for joining me on Icons of DC Area Real Estate today. Thank you. And I appreciate you joining me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Tell me a little bit about uh, your role at Project Destined and maybe a bit of high-level overview. I was on the website. I didn't really see a mission statement for the company. So maybe you can state that a little bit and uh, give us an orientation of what what you do on a day-to-day basis there. Of course, John. Thank you for having me. It's it's a tremendous pleasure. Uh, This has been a long time in the works. I've always admired your tremendous contribution to real estate, not just in D.C., but in the country. So it's um, it's a real privilege to be here with you. Uh, I am the co-founder of Project Destin. Our focus really is two things. One is to build a pipeline of talent, diverse talent into the real estate sector. Uh, And second, and, you know, it's certainly appropriate for today, MLK Day, uh, is to build um, a generation of owners. I mean, it's to train folks how to build a, you know, an ownership mentality. I believe that ownership changes how you see yourself, how you see your community, uh, how you see a building. Those are our two goals. I think they're of equal weight, but it's certainly the ownership piece that motivates me each and every day. So tell me about what you do on a day-to-day basis. What are your What are your role? What How do you see yourself yeah, yeah, compared yeah. to your partner? You have a partner, I understand. So yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, I'm I'm chief resident cheerleader. I think in so many ways. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I've uh, you know, I spent uh, a couple of years working for Carlisle's founders outside of buying companies, and I always thought that like what was so admirable about being a CEO was that you're a salesperson for your business for your product every single day through how you live, how you work. And so, you know, I think I'm the chief cheerleader because every time I'm on the phone with someone, I'm trying to really clarify our brand and our purpose and to, to build their participation in our work and their enhancement of our work. Because, you know, I'm always looking for problems because I want to solve problems through, through education, but I got to find them. So I spend almost every day talking to some real estate leader, trying to understand their business, you know, how the drive for diversity can enhance it, but some of the challenges that they're facing. And then we go and either, you know, provide them an existing product in education or we build a new one. And so that's why I spend my time. On the operational side, I mean, obviously, you know, I design the training, you know, I manage our staff. Our staff is all former students. I don't have a single employee who isn't a former student. So that requires careful management and engagement. That's how I spend my time. And we're a startup. So you know, you do a little bit of everything, but I say my job one is really bringing people into our community and letting them leave their imprint uh, on the growth of our work. So, Cedric, let's go back in the Wayback Machine here mm, and course. tell us your origins, you know, youth and parental experiences. So, you grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. What influences did you have growing up? Tell us about yeah. your childhood. Yeah, I mean, I'm, so I'm, I'm actually born in a small town near Memphis it's called Sardis, Mississippi. It's a town of about 7,000. I'm born there. And you will hear my family come up a ton as I describe the influences on my work. You know, my great-grandfather, you know, born 1864, bought 100 acres of land in, 
you know, 1890, built a series of agricultural businesses using that land. That land is still in our family today. Even when we moved to Memphis, I spent every summer on that land, you know, running around playing with my cousins. But I went from house to house on property that he had purchased, you know, uh, in the late 1890s. And so that was my context. My context was I grew up with, you know, hearing about a guy, you know, who despite having every disadvantage, you know, bought a piece of land and created, um, you know, wealth to take care of his family. So that was always my context. And that's kind of a no excuses context. That was my youth. My mom took a job at FedEx in the late 70s, uh, moved to Memphis, where many of my, my aunts and uncles now lived, because that's where you went to get jobs. And sure. so I went from kind of growing up in a small town, kind of in a closed environment. My family's super tight. And when I got to, to Memphis, you know, I didn't see a shift in my mom, but I saw this sort of explosion in that she was now working for FedEx, which was a really hot startup. And I began to spend time with folks from all over the world, you know, who had come to Memphis, Tennessee, you know, to advance a transportation business. And I would say it was like the Amazon of its day in the sense of they were really transforming how we thought of international and domestic business through transportation. And so I began just to spend time around lots of, you know, folks from all around the country, around the world who were committed to this mission of transformation of transportation in this town, Memphis. I mean, so I grew up around that. So I went from being in a highly ownership-driven community of my family to now going into a hyper-entrepreneurial community. And my mom was quite wonderful in that, like, she always took me to hang out with her colleagues. And so I was around all these folks who every day, they had a job title, but their real goal was to work with Fred Smith to build an incredible business. And I just sort of looked at the two quite similar. Like my great-grandfather had built this business where everything was about advancing this land that we own. And I was around all these folks who looked different than me, but they had this common mission uh, around advancing a business. So I always say I grew up around phenomenal entrepreneurs, you know, throughout my youth. And that's always what really influenced me. So you, you saw this firsthand, this startup of quite an enterprise that obviously hmm. now is arguably, other than UPS, the largest transport company in the world. What educational influences did you have in elementary school through high school? I mean, did you have some good influences there? Yes. I mean, two things. One, I went to extraordinary schools and all the schools, I mean, I didn't know at the time and they were all black schools, all African-Americans. I mean, I I didn't notice that because that's what my world was, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But I went to tremendous schools with uh, extraordinary teachers but my mom was always kind of, my mom and I have two aunts that are kind of like the extension of my mom. I'm very close to them. You know, they were my real educational, uh, they were influences. I mean, every time I was curious about a topic, there were a bunch of workbooks that would show up to indulge my interest. So if I showed some interest in multiplication, my God, that would be like 12 multiplication <laughs> books. And this is, this is pre-Amazon where you hit a buy now button. This was like them going to a store, making sure I had the resources to indulge my interests and passions. The other piece of it, while they will indulge it, they were also quite um, strict in the sense of, you know, if I came home and complained about a chemistry teacher, my mom was like, but you have a book. So like, well, can't you sort of read yourself and figure out the key elements to be successful on a test? And so I think while they were quite indulgent, they also were quite intentional uh, in making sure that um, there was a self-reliance that, was, that I was building and that there was a drive and an urgency and a relentlessness that didn't just depend on someone else's provision for me, right? And I think it was that duality that sort of shaped uh, much of my educational experience. Did you ever know your father? 
Yeah, I mean, so, I, so I'm not extraordinarily close to my father. I think uh, before you become a father, you're probably a harsh critic. Today, I'm probably a less harsh critic. I think he was probably a wonderful, well-intentioned guy. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was in eighth or ninth grade. And uh, mm-hmm. while we aren't close, you know, when I look at the context of what's happening in the world, I mean, my gosh, how a, how a Black dude born in Mississippi who um, has his race and uh, deficiencies, uh, real or perceived, thrown at him, how he can be a normal person, I just don't know how. Uh, so I, you know, I, I probably have greater sympathy for my father today. I didn't have that sympathy when I was younger. But when I look at the context of our country today and what he must have gone through, I think I've got a great deal of sympathy for him. And again, my parents had very different sort of roots. My mom is born into a family where her great-grand, her grandfather was an entrepreneur, extraordinarily successful, lived on his own property. My father was born into the city side of my hometown in an environment where there were, there were constant challenges driven by race and the insecurity uh, and frustration of being, you know, uh, criticized for something you didn't control. I just can't imagine what that's, uh, what that's like. So I have great sympathy for him today. I didn't have it when I was younger. That's a fault of mine. But today I have great sympathy for him. So it's good that at least you have a relationship with him. And that's a good thing. Of course. Yeah. No, I mean, like, my, he's a phenomenal guy. And I think that um, as, I have, uh, I have, as I have grown older, uh, and wiser, I have an appreciation for those challenges. I didn't have it today, I mean, before, but I certainly have it now. So after uh, growing up in Memphis, you decided to go off to college. You started where at, at Knoxville, University of Tennessee. Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah? No, so I um, so I went to University of Tennessee. I studied engineering. I mean, I was a super geek. I mean, I don't even think I had many friends. I mean, I um, I, I was really, you know, I wanted to become an owner. I didn't know how to do it. I studied engineering. <laughs> mostly to get the badge of engineering. My, my wife's a proper mechanical engineer. She's tremendous. She has a passion for it. I did not have that passion. I had a passion for getting good grades and to having career flexibility. And so I studied engineering in school. And um, I remember passing, you know, a guy named Jerry Johnson one day. He's, you know, a fantastic um, executive. And uh, he described this program at Harvard Business School. He was, a, I think, a senior at Tennessee at the time. And he described this summer program at Harvard Business School that he was going to, and I, and this was pre-Google, right? So I spent the next couple of days figuring out what that was and found my way into that program. And I would say the real shaping of what my career would become was when I discovered that having good grades, having a vision could get me to places like Harvard Business School. So I did that program for a summer and that's what really opened my eyes to business. But then I understand you, you attended Oxford for a year. Was that a year abroad or was that a, a program or what, how did you get there? Yeah, it was it was a year abroad, and I mean um, that was planned before I even started at Tennessee. Uh, my mom has been a tremendous partner in my in my career planning, and so when I got a scholarship to go to Tennessee by this wonderful gentleman named Chris Whittle, uh, from this wonderful guy named Chris Whittle, and it included um, a year abroad anywhere you wanted to go. And so my mom, my mom and I, you know, we uh, we said, well, Bill Clinton went to Oxford, maybe you should go to Oxford, and I knew nothing <laughs> about Oxford. I got to be honest. But uh, I knew it was a good school. And you'll see a common trend that I always believed it was important to pick up experiences and brands that would create career flexibility. So studying engineering was one, going to this Harvard Business School program was two, and then going to Oxford was a different one because what I wanted to be able to do is stand up in any interview and be able to present um, an experience set that was compelling, that was broad, that convinced you that there was nothing that I couldn't be successful at. So. You know, I went, uh, I went abroad, 
I mean, I absolutely loved it. I played a mixture of sports. I studied uh, politics and economics, uh, philosophy, and I played rugby with guys who were doing investment banking. I thought that it was a more profitable form of math, given what they were describing as their career prospects. When I finished that, I came back to the U.S. and I did a, I did a summer on Wall Street and I was placed at Solomon Brothers. And so that was a, obviously a, a real awakening to go from small town, Tennessee, to Oxford, to now be on Wall Street. So as a black man going to England, growing up in the United States, yeah. was there a different perception? I mean, how does how did that, you know, what, how did the British people look at, at you differently than American people, just out of curiosity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think with the exception of a few awkward barbershop experiences, um, it was a pretty positive experience. I mean, I, I think what I've always loved about the UK, they don't know who you really are. I think while in the US, Mississippi, you know, there's black, there's white, maybe today in the Southeast, there's, there, there's a focus on there's Hispanic and they understand that. But when I was at Oxford, they didn't know who you were. They didn't know if I was Eritrean, if I was Nigerian, if I was Ghanaian. There's no sense of what to expect. There are obviously biases driven by class, given the history of the UK. But when it comes to race, they're a little bit confused as to, as to what to make of you. And so what I think I loved about it, and it's the same way as great musicians loved about London and Paris you know, in the 50s and 60s. What I loved is that you didn't, there was no preconceived pattern of what I was to be. There was confusion, but there was no preconceived pattern. And so I love the fact that they didn't know me. What they saw me as is American. And as an American, they thought I was brash and relentless and driven, all the things I completely am, by the way. And so <laughs> I thought, um, I thought that um, it was more aligned with who I was, the stereotypes that they were giving me. And I thought that they were quite positive. And so I really, I really loved my experience there because I could, um, I could really focus on just being excellent versus trying to defend, you know, who I was as a, as a person of color. So how did that experience shape your life? I mean, giving mm-hmm. that oriented, just the breadth of it, the, the, the different perspectives of things. And what, what did that do to you, do you think? Well, well, I think that, um, you know, I would be insincere if I, if I didn't tell you that growing up in the context of the South, um, in the 70s and 80s that you don't grow up with a certain set of insecurities, right? And mm-hmm. so those insecurities, I think I use them for positive and that sort of they drove me to try and be excellent, but they're still insecurities, right? And so I think that um, when I went to England and I was successful, I think what it gave me was a certain confidence and a self-reliance, much of what my mother had tried to ground me in, but I think you got to go through these things yourself. Uh, when I got to England and I was successful and I've been successful you know, in high school, I've been successful at University of Tennessee. I've been successful at this Harvard summer program. I've been successful at, at Oxford. For me, I had a pattern that there were things that I obviously was doing to be successful. And I began to sort of revisit those. And in many ways, it was isolating challenges and not becoming distracted. So you will see a certain pattern I'll describe as I discuss projects and others is that typically when I start something new, I kind of shut the world out. I mean, I, I tend to don't, I don't communicate with friends or family. I just lock in on my goal. That's what made me successful in school uh, at Oxford, um, Wall Street, is that I just block things out. And really, I have a tunnel vision on simply my goal. Now, again, that is a flaw in so many ways, uh, right? But it certainly leads to professional success. And so I think at Oxford, I began to really you know, lock into that sort of tunnel vision focus on my academics, my rugby, and other things that I was doing. And that's, that's always been a hallmark of what's made me successful. That led you on to Harvard Business School, which I assume 
that discipline that you just talked about helped you considerably there, I imagine. Is that uh, yeah, I mean, so, the couple, so there's, a, there's a couple steps along the way uh, that I think are, are critical. So when I got to Solomon Brothers, they placed me in the private equity coverage group, financial sponsors group. I had no idea what private equity was. I didn't know that there were folks who use other people's money to invest in things and share a portion of the profits. Like that was completely new to me. I called my mother and I was in absolute shock and committed to doing that for the rest of my life. So, so that Solomon Brothers experience changed my professional pursuit in many ways. And so after that, um, I did two jobs before... I went to Harvard Business School. One, I went to work at an investment bank, DLJ, that was, you know, oh, sure. w- was well regarded for getting you into private equity. And then I went and spent two years at a private equity firm in San Francisco. So again, a very distinct New York experience and then a West Coast experience that I think was really important for just placing me around lots of tech entrepreneurs and really having an orientation for, you know, how they are successful. Along the way, I met my wife, who's from, you know, from London. Uh, and so I began spending lots of time in Europe and the UK. And then I went back to Harvard Business School. Uh, and I went to, when I got to Harvard Business School, I had a very different focus, which was for me was um, I wanted to really refine what it meant to become an owner. Obviously, the academics were important, but I had a very clear goal for, you know, just beginning to practice and understand what great leaders were doing, but also what great owners were doing. So I had a very distinct focus while I was there. Returning to private equity was one. But two was really laying the foundation for what I do today, which is, you know, how do you, how do you build something? How do you bring together a collection of people and pursue a common goal? So I think HBS was wonderful for that, both the students who are there, but also the community of folks who have who've passed through. It's interesting. I think of Harvard as being, or graduate business school as being a more of a corporate orientation instead of an mm. entrepreneurial one. Mm. So uh, although... I assume you could go that entrepreneurial path there, but mm. it's interesting that you're, you're driven to be an owner, which is an entrepreneurial mm. enterprise as opposed mm. to being a corporate finance person. Your origins tells me that your grandfather's real estate ownership and all that kind of always in your back of your mind circling, how am I going to get there? And this was a way to do it. Is that a way? Yeah, and, I, and here's the beauty of Harvard versus Stanford. So, you know, my choices were go to Harvard Business School, go to Stanford. I was already on the West Coast. Those are good choices. <laughs> Those are good choices. And, and, and my focus was Harvard Business School is 900 folks every year. Stanford is probably 300. Right. Uh, and so for me, when you look through the Harvard sort of database of, of folks who've gone fast through alumni base, it's 900 folks every year, it's 900 very talented folks, and they're all over the world. And I wanted to be a part of that. And, and by the way, there's a, there's a very large uh, set of African-American alums who are there as well. And so yes. I, thought of, I thought of Harvard for two reasons. One, the global presence, right? They've got folks all around the world. Whatever country I arrive in, there's probably a Harvard Business School student who's doing something of merit. Uh, the second is while you are there, remember I'm there in 2002, uh, 2004, and the tech bubble has just burst, but there's a whole new push for graduate schools to understand entrepreneurship. So when I arrived, there's this incredible collection of folks who, who want to pick up the corporate skills, but they have an entrepreneurial bent. And that was me. I mean, again, I was driven to return to private equity, but I thought it was pretty important. And what I saw in private equity was private equity was a business of finding entrepreneurs to back with capital and to help them scale their business. And so I thought Harvard was an incredible place to, to, to be able to do that, just given the collection of people that were there. It's interesting. Two of my prior podcast guests are African-American Harvard business graduates as well, <laughs> John, John Green and Joe Carroll. And I 
think you've met them over the years. So of course, yeah. So you uh, you went from there on to uh, Carlisle. I understand mm. is that is that correct? Yeah. Well, so so when I was at HBS, uh, I got a fellowship from Credit Suisse where they paid for for my time at Harvard as long as I worked there for a couple of years. So I actually, during my summers at HBS, I worked for DLJ Merchant Banking's private equity vehicle, but I worked in London. My wife was in London. So I worked there for the summer and went there after, after graduate school. And frankly, we planned to be in London for the duration of my career. Credit Suisse spun out as private equity group. I didn't want to stay in a smaller vehicle. And so I literally, I made one call to a headhunter. She was looking to place someone at Carlisle. And I made that call in June. I was working at Carlisle in DC by August. So that was kind of the transition. I stopped in London for a couple of years and then came to Carlisle and spent, um, you know, 10 really extraordinary uh, years at the firm. So explain how you were recruited. Why Washington? And how did you talk your wife into coming, you know, <laughs> coming to Washington? I mean, look, I mean, I, again, uh, the common trend for me was creating career flexibility. And so I loved working in, I love working in London. I love working with Deutsche Banking, but Carlisle is Carlisle. Um, and so uh, they had a brand producing tremendous returns and talent. They had a presence globally, which was really important to me. And so when I got the offer, I just, I mean, I explained to my wife that like, this is a detour, but it's one that could provide, provide a foundation for so much more for us as a family. Uh, and my wife is, is a special woman uh, and truly my partner. And we, um, and she took the bet. I mean, it took a while to kind of get her to, to want to live in DC. But I, so I came first and, you know, Carlisle was everything I could have wanted. I mean, it was full of incredible people who had roots in both business and in government. They were investing all around the globe. I think I was probably there for one of the, you know, fastest growth periods while they were going public as well. And it was an extraordinary experience and everything we had signed up for. But what it also did was it gave me the final piece that I needed for entrepreneurship, which is that you combine, you know, Harvard and Oxford and Carlisle, when you show up as an entrepreneur to do something, people begin to give you the benefit of the doubt that you know what you're talking about. You still got to prove out your business plan. But for me, it gave me the final piece and it gave me a capital base where I could go in entrepreneurship, not having to raise a single dime and being able to bet on myself. And that is an extraordinarily compelling feature when you go into a business and you can say your money has gone in first and people are betting on scaling your work versus being the first dollar in. So Carlisle was um, an incredibly important element uh, of what I do today. So you were there for 10 years and it's interesting. I assume that you have a process because you're a disciplined guy. Every Mm -hmm. year you kind of looked at maybe January 1st or some annual point and said, okay, I've done this for this period of time. So what am I going to do this year? And so then at a certain point, you wanted to be an entrepreneur. It sounded like mm. that's kind of your mm. roots. What mm. was the, the tipping point of, you know, mm. I'm 10 years at one of the largest private equity firms in the world. I'm a partner. Why don't I just stay, you know, or, oh, now is my time to make this move. What, what was it that made that? Well, for me, it's about picking up skills. Like I didn't have, when I started at Carlisle, I didn't have all the skills. I mean, I think um, so many people think of these large private equity firms, it's about the the analytical skills. And so, you know, I came in and I have analytical skills, but I needed to begin to build other skills like, um, you know, sourcing or business development. Mm -hmm. I needed to um, be able to put together 
you know, a business plan, not just for myself, but for the businesses that I, I invested in. I needed to be able to really build, you know, executive presence. So when I walked into a room, I could sit down and while the fact that I might look different, I had the ability to take command of a room and, uh, and to guide folks towards a common goal. And I didn't have that when I came into Carlisle. And part of being, part of being an organization that's growing very quickly is that you get more responsibility than perhaps you deserve. And so I think that I came in there at a, at a growth period where I could both build and refine all the analytical skills, but build a set of leadership skills that were relevant. And, you know, the thing that really, you know, pushed me towards knowing I was ready to pursue entrepreneurship was when I got to a place where, you know, I could build a thesis, you know, for a project, but then I could go out and find the entrepreneurs and persuade them to let us partner with them in the journey. That was sort of critical to me because I think when you do that a few times, again, you go from insecurity, you may have a goal, but you're insecure about it. You go from insecurity to now, okay, I've done this a few times, but obviously things that I'm doing that are working, they're things that I can improve with the things that are working. And so for me, there were a couple of deals within the rail sector and the shipping sector uh, where everything didn't go perfect. But what I saw was the ability to put together a thesis, to be dogged and chasing down the opportunity to persuade an executive to partner with me in the journey, and then to go out and execute a business plan. And to me, like, that's what I needed because I've got enough self-reliance to make a bet on myself, but I needed those skills. And so Mm -hmm. I tell all of my students today, go and borrow someone else's business card for five or 10 years, pick up some skills, and then go out and test it on yourself, right? So I felt like, Carlisle gave me that final piece of getting those refined skills, executive presence, so I could then go and do it on my own. It's interesting. Uh, one of the founders of the firm, David David Rubenstein, he has a show every I don't know every week now on PBS, yeah. I think. Yeah. And you know, he was an attorney, and it's interesting. One of my podcast guests earlier, <laughs> Wendy White, did some mm. work with David early in his career. He came out of government. And he said. Mm. You know, he was the money raising guy for Carlisle when they started. Mm. He had never done it before, but he started just, mm. you know, he just went out there. With, he's and, and as if you've heard him interview and you probably know him personally, mm. he, he just has this dogged way of asking questions and keep digging mm. information. Yeah. And he developed the confidence of doing it by doing that, which was interesting. But anyway. Yeah. And I, I guess I think of David Moore as, um, I, I think he's like chief architect. I mean, I think that, um, yes, he's got this tremendous both skill and humility relative to his accomplishments. And I think people point to the fundraising, but I point to the fact that I'm not sure that they take that business global without David, right? First of all, you need capital to be able to do that. And he's playing a central role, but I think he was an important architect. I'm sure there were many others. And taking it from a largely very successful U.S. LBO business to a global business that was daring enough and dogged enough, right, to go and recruit other executives to help grow their brand around the world. And I think that's where, that's, I think, is his legacy is that that's a global business, I think, because, you know, of his drive and doggedness. So what was the tipping point? When did you look at yourself and say, I'm ready, let's, let's do this? And step off the the partnership train that you're mm. on at Carlisle, which is pretty lucrative, mm. and say, mm. you know, here we go. Now we're going to dive into the deep end here and start this thing. Financial security was obviously important. I mean, I think I had reached a point of financial security probably 2010, 2011. So I was 
I was confident from the financial security perspective and that my family would be fine if I made a few mistakes. But it was probably a few transactions between 2011 and 2014 that frankly gave me the confidence that I could sit down with an executive and and persuade them to to back a vision. That's what I really needed. I needed to I needed to see that. I needed to experience it because I knew I could then replicate it. Uh, so 2015, you know, and the other thing is that I started buying real estate, right? So I mean, like, you know, largely influenced, um, you know, obviously by my great grandfather. But then, you know, my wife and I had started buying real estate first in London, then in the U.S. Um, in 2005 and six. And I think I developed also a passion for something else, which is I had seen that real estate gave me something different in that I'm all, I was always trying to find like what made me different or get, what gave me an advantage when I was pursuing an opportunity. And in corporate private equity, I mean, you're, you may be buying a business in Detroit, but, you know, outside of employing a few people, you know, your influence on the fabric of what is Detroit is limited, right? What I began to see in some of my real estate investments is that I was becoming part of the fabric of the community. I mean, I was providing multifamily housing. There were hundreds of people living in housing that my wife, my wife and I own. And I was like, wow, I'm an important part of the fabric and I look like them. And I began to see something really unique in that in real estate, as, as a Black guy going into these communities, right, I don't always have to pay the highest price that there actually sometimes there is a desire to have people of my background investing in the community because that means something. So I began to see this advantage that like, hold on, like the thing that has been a real challenge for most of my life or something that was a scarlet letter for some folks, like is now like a huge advantage and tailwind. And I was like, that's pretty incredible. So I started trying to buy in places like Baltimore, where they wanted to see folks like me come in and invest capital. And then I saw this movie in 2016 about Detroit. And I was blown away about the amount of investment that was going into the city. But yet there were few people of color who were owners and few people who were even getting jobs as a result of the investment. And I saw this movie in 2016. I was on a plane to Detroit a week later. And I went there every week for almost 12 weeks. And then I struck up this partnership, you know, with the mayor's office. And, you know, that was the real beginning of Project Destin. And so I, I put it into categories, which is that Carlisle gave me confidence and a capital base to pursue what I wanted. It also gave me time to make mistakes. So 2015, I was largely kind of making tons of mistakes. I saw this movie in 2016. And then I knew, and I think from Carlisle, like, you, when you're out there and you're constantly searching for deals, it becomes this point where like, you know you're on to something special. Everyone else may not see it, but you can see a thesis evolving mm-hmm. and you have time to execute it. So the capital base that Carlisle had provided and the confidence that I gained while working there, I now found a place to express that thesis. And Detroit was my chance to express it. And Detroit is just a phenomenal city. It had a huge tailwind. And they were open to entrepreneurs like me who were, one, diverse, who had their own capital put behind their efforts, and who were going to find a way to bring the community together. Like, that's what came together over the course of 18 months that, um, you know, I just didn't foresee, but I'm, I'm forever grateful. I'm a native Detroiter, as I mentioned before we started this. And hmm. to see, I grew up, you know, in the 1960s in Detroit and in Detroit area, and, and then to see you know, all the things that it went through. Mm. And then I left in the early 80s, but 
you know, even that time was, was pretty rough. And, you know, there were a lot of corruption and a lot of things that went down. My, I put my father in the ground in 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. and I came back up there to see it. And it was incredible to see that neighborhoods that were, you know, row housing were completely demolished in some parts of the city. And it was yeah. almost fields. Yeah. So it was a clean slate when you got there, you know, Detroit was somewhat of a clean slate. Yeah. All, I mean, they eradicated all the problems. It seemed like it was kind of a, a whiteboard to start working there. Almost. I mean, I think, I think that they eradicated some problems, right. But I think that there was a really big problem of, you know, uh, okay, downtown is getting redeveloped. The the outer neighborhoods are not. I think the other thing is they had a real problem of inclusion. I mean, like there was a small set of folks, you know, Dan Gilbert, the Illich family, who were driving yes. much right. of the development. There were obviously right. other developers who were active. There was very there were very few diverse developers, owners in a town that's, I mean, you know, still largely African American. And so I think if you're the mayor of that city, like that's a real problem, uh, right? You're the very definition in some ways of gentrification. And and so for me, when I got there, what I saw were people who were slow to trust, but once they trust that you can execute, they'll put everything behind you. So I just set up this strategy of like, I was in Detroit, almost like I have this approach where when I launch a new market, I pick a day of the week and I go there almost every day, you know, to meet with folks. And so I picked like a Tuesday. I was in Detroit like every Tuesday. I would set up shop in a local hotel and I would just kind of get to know people, host lunches, dinners, et cetera. And what I saw in Detroit was a chance to do something special. And so the partnership I struck with the mayor's office, and I'm so grateful to them, is that they helped me figure out areas that needed investment outside of downtown. And what I agreed to do was to begin training a set of students at a high school high school uh, in Detroit on how to invest in real estate. But I didn't take this sort of theoretical approach of like, you know, here's how you source, here's how you finance. I basically taught them those elements one Saturday a month, but I put them onto teams and made them pitch live ideas. Because my view is that if you want to teach someone the buyout business or you want to teach them the real estate business, it's an apprenticeship style experience that's required. And I needed them to see themselves as owners and understand what ownership requires. Like if the garbage is a mess, that's your problem, right? If a tenant moves out, that's your problem. So yes, you own this physical space, but everything that goes wrong is your problem. All the upside is your opportunity. And so I needed them to understand that. So I think what Detroit gave me was a chance to train students on looking at how to invest in their neighborhood and participate in the growth of it. And that's what I'll always be grateful to Detroit for is that it's a wonderful place to present that because there's so much opportunity to invest. Mm-hmm. So how did you stimulate the curiosity of young people? And how do you get them out of that mindset of mm. the challenges they had? Because obviously the movie that you cited was a young man who had, a t- you know, it's kind of a dual, a dual yeah. character story. Yes. Describe how you take somebody around down the right path instead of the wrong path. How yeah. Did you, how did you inspire people to do that? Yeah. Well, it goes back to what I think, you know, business leaders are and guys like David Rubenstein in particular is that you got to be a salesperson. I mean, you got to sell your product. And today I think of what I've built is an education business that teaches ownership through real estate. Right. You know, I remember going to the school that we partnered with, 
in the beginning was Jalen Rose Leadership Academy. Obviously, you know Jalen oh, Rose. Sure. Yeah. And so um I'm, so a, I'm he, a Wolverine myself. So are you? Oh wow. <laughs> yes. Okay, got it. So so uh, wow, of course you are. And so uh, uh they 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 produce a lot of talent. So um so you I mean literally I went into high schools like Jalen Rose Leadership Academy, Renaissance and others, and I gotta go in and I gotta talk to students and I gotta persuade them. When I go in, what I preach is ownership. Like, so I'm not telling you, hey, come and just learn about, you know, you know, how you source a real estate deal. How do you get onto websites or, you know, how do you put together a pro forma? What I'm selling you is on Detroit is changing. Uh, do you want to be a participant in that change? Do you want to be an owner one day? Well, if you want to do that, start practicing now. Uh, and I walk them through, you know, not what I hope to do, but what I've done. I mean, I've invested a ton of money in buying things and by the way, at that time, I didn't have any donors. I didn't have, I didn't have any donors for the first three years. So I said to them, every dollar that I spend on your training is my own dollar. So I'm not spending some, you know, local guy's money. I'm spending my own money. My wife and I are, you know, our, our, our nest egg. So, you know, I persuaded them on the idea of becoming owners, letting me teach them and that, and then I monetized the experience of making it a competition. So as they presented ideas, they earned the equivalent of, you know, scholarship or internship stipend. So I think it was that combination that created curiosity. But then when they arrived, you know, into our training, I had to keep it high impact, engaging, and I had to make it experiential. And so we went mm -hmm. on site visits, localists, you can understand, you know, what is an opportunity. And that when sure. you go and you buy this piece of dirt or you buy, are you, are you going, you buy this dilapidated building, it doesn't produce any cash flow. There's no increase in value because you bought it. You got to go and create and make it space that generates cash flow. And so I think that curiosity, like again, that demystification is what got them excited. They had only seen that on TV. And now we were bringing it to bear for them. And I think that's what got them excited and created the word of mouth. And fundamentally, I think it created as much excitement with the, with the high school students as it did with their parents. There were, you know, parents and grandparents who would sit in on those lessons, both to make sure I was teaching them something. But also, I think they had curiosity about the fact that their city is changing. And today, they're not part of it. And they want to be. And they saw their kids getting the skills. So does, was there a qualification that you had for students to participate in the program? I mean, you know, basic, basic mathematical skills. I mean, what, what mm. were you looking for, for mm. as criteria for your, for your initial students? So, so for the first three years, I've got to be honest, like, we, I mean, we had an application, but like, I never looked at it. I mean, I looked at, um, I typically, well, an application that included like, you know, a bunch of questions. I typically only read like your essay. An essay could be like three sentences, by the way. Uh, I just was looking for drive and interest and, and most importantly, curiosity. Uh, because to me, it was curiosity that was going to carry you forward. Uh, and so it was the curiosity of the young people that really attracted me to wanting to teach them. You know, that's up until today is curiosity that, you know, drives the students that we select. I mean, today we have thousands of students who apply for very few spots. Back then, you know, there were only a couple hundred, but it was always still the curiosity around real estate and how you could apply it. So I typically have two questions, you know, why real estate? And how are you going to use it to enhance your life or your career or mm -hmm. your family? Typically, yep. those two questions drive whether we want you to be part of Project Destin. Fascinating. So mm. you bridged the practical aspects of doing deals with education, in essence. Yeah. So you, you did an on-the-job training, in essence, of, of, of <laughs> these young people. Yeah. How did you expand Project Destin and recruit mm. 
both young people and sponsorship. What what took you out of Detroit? You know, obviously yeah. you had a little thing, and what what was the next step beyond that? Yeah, so so two things in every market for the first three years, I made I made sure that I both you know trained students effectively, and I invested in real estate locally, and it created um, you know you know strong storytelling. So we would generate good press around what we were doing because mm-hmm. I think lots of folks came in and told stories and never invested money, or they invested money and never engaged the youth. And so we did both every single time. So that was the first thing that generated some press. Then a guy named George Cates, uh, who founded Mid-American Properties, heard about it, flew up to see it, asked us to bring it to Memphis. We built it in Memphis with 25 students. I bought another building there, same model, trained the students using this competition style format where they earn scholarship stipends while uh, they were learning to invest. And then, I mean, ironically, my wife features in everything that I've done. Uh, I took my wife and a friend, Deborah Lee, to a JLo concert. And I got to thank Benny Medina. He heard about the work that they were doing. He took me over to meet Alex. Alex says, you know, I own 15,000 apartment units. Why don't you do it with me in Miami? And so two months later, we were in Miami. And I think part of, you know, my success was I have this crazy sense of urgency around doing things. And if someone like Alex says, I want to do it, I asked him that night in Jennifer's, you know, backstage, I said, what date are we going to do it? And we pick a date and we hit that date. And for those first three years, the reason why I was able to do that was because I, was my wife and I funded everything. So I, w- I didn't have to go out and raise a single dime because my wife and I were going to fund it. So we were going to launch Miami. That meant that we were going to launch it. All I needed was a date to make sure I was efficient. So we picked a date, we launched uh, in Miami, it was extraordinarily successful. I invested in a project with Alex. I bought a building on my own. We trained 40 students. And at the end of it, Alex and Jen say, why don't you try this in the Bronx? And then we launched in the Bronx. That was the first time we took a donation. So for three years, my wife and I funded all the education, all of the real estate. And that's why we grew so quickly. When we got to New York, you know, Alex um, was pretty incredible in lending us to street credibility. So he introduced us to, to, to Judy Diamond. So she and Jamie hosted a launch event for us, John Gray and his foundation launched. They were our first two donors and they gave us a ton of street credibility. What they also did, this is really, this is really Judy Diamond. You know, Judy said, well, what about CUNY? What about college students? And, you know, I hadn't really engaged college students to that time. We'd had, mm-hmm. you know, small numbers. It was probably a high school program. And Judy was like, well, what about expanding the program to include college? And Alex, I remember saying to Judy, he's like, he's like Judy, we're going to do it, but let's play small ball first and get the model right. And so we took, I think, you know, 40 students. I think 15 of them were CUNY students. This year, I've trained probably 500 CUNY students. That was the beginning of something special. So I really credit Judy Diamond with pushing us to engage with CUNY. And the beauty of Judy is that when she tells you or when she suggests to you that you should do something, she gives you 1,000% support. So days later, you know, I'm on the telephone with folks who can provide access to CUNY. And that really transformed our work. Also, the fact that Alex got the Yankees to support our work. So we had a competition at Yankee Stadium. He and Jennifer skipped the Oscars to come to our events so we get global press. And so Alex and Jen, I mean, really loaned us a ton of street credibility by creating awareness for our work. Then we began working for companies in the sense of companies would come to us and say, we're doing a development in the Bronx you know, why don't you partner with us and build an educational platform that supports our development? And once you do that a few times, 
um, you become a proven entity for doing that type of work. And that was really the foundation of it. So I, so I, Judy and Jamie, I mean, hats off for them for believing in us early and for Alex and Jen for creating that awareness. That's phenomenal. On your website, you have a, an interview with you and Alex Rodriguez, and it's, yeah. it's pretty inspiring, actually, uh, about the- how his origins you're doing to him what I'm doing to you right now, basically. You were asking him his origin story and the whole how he got it going, which is interesting. So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a good video, and I'll put it on the, on the show link, of course. Mm. So I mean, talk about the evolution of the curriculum of Project yeah. Destined. So yeah. you started, a, you had your own formula initially, mm. putting money in and uh, in Detroit. But talk about yeah. how the curriculum's evolved, and I understand you have some new internship programs that you're rolling out mm. and then we'll get into Washington DC next and what you're doing here in Washington. So of talk course. about the evolution of your cu- curriculum. Yeah. What I always thought made our, our work unique is that we were teaching to an outcome. We weren't teaching to just make you smarter about real estate in your hometown. We were teaching to the point to where you could look at a building and understand the value of it and then think about the sources and uses. Right. And I think that's what students always appreciated is that it wasn't like, here's a cool class on a Saturday. Now I'm going to go back to my neighborhood and just wonder how I do it. We always taught to an outcome and we always taught from the perspective of you becoming an owner. And I think there was there was both the language that we were providing. There was the awareness of opportunity. But I think there was also this um, we were creating confidence about the fact that you could do it. And there was all three of those elements I thought that was critical. And so. Our curriculum began to evolve because as we taught it, we were always collecting feedback around what worked and what didn't work. And when and when you're funding it all, you rapidly put what works in place. It's not like you slowly sort of think about, well, should I do it? It's like, heck, I could be more efficient in teaching this, which means I can train more students if I make this tweak. So we were always tweaking because it was our dollar at risk, right? And so by the time we got to Miami, we had really refined the curriculum. And now the customer was changing. And when I mean customer, I mean the students were changing. And that now we were working with a population that was largely Latinx, largely immigrant, and they had a different orientation than in Detroit, where you're working with largely African-American families who've just seen the neighborhood change. They've got a different perspective on why that change has happened uh, that's grounded in, in, uh, in, in civil rights. And so I just began to see something different. So, And I also saw the need that all of these students needed a certain foundation for us to be able to accelerate the learning. And so that was the first time we began building any learning platform. I saw this Jay-Z op-ed in the New York Times where he had used graffiti animation to educate New York Times readers about the impact of the drug trade uh, on his neighborhood in New York. And I was like, wow, like imagine if we use animation, you know, to teach students. So we began working with an education company and we built these series of animations that would teach the foundations of language in real estate. So we began requiring our students to complete this, these animated modules. That has become a huge part of our work because what that does is that one, it tests whether you're serious or not. If you've got to go and complete four hours of training before you begin in person, it just separates folks who are serious versus folks who are just kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll try it, baby. It also gives you a tremendous amount of language because by the time you come into the in-person course, now you've got some awareness around what net operating income and gross and net rent about cap rates. You may not understand it fully, but you've got the foundations of it. So we began mm-hmm. using the e-learning as an entry point. 
but it also gave you a ton of language. So by the time you met Alex or any other trainer, when they say the word NOI, you don't like look around. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, I understand some of it. How do you use NOI to make a decision? So mm-hmm. building the learning platform was a huge piece. So by the time I got to New York, we both had a curriculum that had been tested across hundreds of students that was in person. We also had an e-learning curriculum that basically could help us scale the work because now I could train a hundred students with the same effectiveness of training 15 because those hundreds shared a common language. And I was able to use the learning to understand where their strengths, where their weaknesses were to be able to put them on teams, but also to refine my in-person lectures. Does that make sense? Sure. Mm-hmm. So did you broaden the, the curriculum to include market analysis? And I mean, obviously you're looking at a single deal yeah. Single property. Yep. And, okay. But what about its context and what about mm. development, like looking at zoning and different land use issues? Did you integrate some of that into the training as well? Just out of curiosity. Yes. Yeah. So what I think, so I've got this perspective and, you know, many students will acquire something. Few of them will develop something, right? So we mm-hmm. have an orientation. We teach acquisition first uh, because, yeah. The fundamentals around acquisition and understanding how to value cash flow and how to raise capital. This is something whether you do real estate or whether you do buyouts or whether you do venture capital, that is going to be relevant to you. So we teach the mindset of acquisitions first. So our e-learning focuses on the acquisition and development process. But when you go into the art of the deal or deal financing, it's largely acquisition-based, so you can build that fundamental. And the way I think of the world is that there are folks who buy cash flow, you know, folks who do value-add acquisitions, and there are folks who build to cash flow, developers. So we help students understand that, like, these are the two worlds, and they require different processes. Then we quickly switched you to working on a live project. So in the case of the Bronx, Brookfield brought us in to basically build a program to work with Bronx, both high school students and college students, because they were investing a billion dollars in a large development in the Bronx. And so we taught students the fundamentals of acquisition and development, and then they applied it looking at this live deal with Brookfield and the Bronx. And so they have the language to now understand that when you're talking about land use and entitlement, you're talking about, heck, what can I do with this dirt? to be able to produce cash flow going forward. And so that's how we teach, which is that very much plain English, build language first, layer on process and people, and then go into a live deal so you can build the confidence on how to apply it in your community. That's great. That's great. So you went to the Bronx and then you, you're now in how many cities around the country? So now, so now we're in 14 cities, I mean, U.S. and London. I mean, you know, I plan on being in every major city in the world over time because I think that there is this, you know, there is this gap that exists between mm-hmm. uh, between owners uh, and consumers of real estate. And I think we have a chance to fill that gap. And so obviously we've practiced in the U.S. and we're going to scale in the U.S., but the same issue exists in the U.K., the same issue exists in West Africa, the same issue exists in Asia. So these same kind of challenges exist. We're just refining it here, and then we'll grow it around the globe. So talk about your Washington, D.C. initiative. I understand you just started a pilot program last fall. Talk about that and how it's going to evolve. Yeah, and I love the way you say it because I think uh, in your mind, 
for a while you said like, why do you live in DC and I have a program in DC? Uh, and, <laughs> and, I, and the reason is why is it, um, you know, our program is largely a partnership-based program and that, you know, we're tr- typically driven by demand. So in the case of the Bronx, we came there with Judy and Jamie and Alex and Jen, you know, we really grew there because Brookfield wanted us to expand the work. And now, you know, we partnered with the Real Estate Board of New York and others who are helping us really scale that work. Every city we grew in after that was because there was demand. Brookfield wanted to support us in Los Angeles, right? I mean, people want us to come to Baltimore. So typically a developer or firm will come to us and say, we want you in our market and we will build something for them in the market. In DC, we frankly hadn't had a developer uh, or an owner say to us that we really want you in DC. Uh, And then I got a call. I mean, I I got a call last summer uh, where there was a developer uh, who was developing something at Howard University that said, you know, your model could fit in really well with something that we're doing with Howard. And when I heard the word Howard, I said, this is the perfect partner for me. Like, I, I would love to be partnered with Historically Black College and bringing this skill set to bear, you know, at a college that both has such tremendous, you know, roots and impact globally in education, but that also sits, uh, sits on some of the most incredible real estate in the country, right? Like this, is the perfect, this is the perfect partnership. And so that developer, we haven't figured anything out. But Howard, I mean, like that's, I mean, I, that was the partner that I wanted. So this was the case where I committed to doing DC. I didn't have a partner, which meant my wife and I were going to fund it until we found one. And then we got really lucky in that PGM Real Estate, you know, we met them. And then they said, you know what? We'd really love to do work with Historically by College. And I said, well, partner with Howard. And they were like, phenomenal. And so I don't think they would have partnered with us initially if we didn't have Historically by College because they really wanted um, to be able to en- enhance their recruiting at, at HBCUs. And so it was a perfect fit and uh, that we could solve a problem for them around accessing talent. And they gave us a whole different cre- cre- kind of credibility because of PGM's reach and reputation. And so we really launched with PGM as our first partner. Then Heinz came in as a partner, then Aria Development. And so we went from like kind of having like a small little pilot in D.C. This is literally in July. You know, by late August, we've got three partners and we've got, a, you know, a full set of applications from Howard and we're up and running. And literally it came out of one call in like late June, July. It's interesting. One of your partners I know is Willie Walker at Walker Dunlop. Yeah, of course. Of course. They're here as well in Washington. Mm. It started here. So, but I know Willie's now out in Denver, but it's, uh, you know, I would think they'd be a, a real good support for you here as well. I would well, think, Willie, well, well, Willie is a good friend and they're a supporter nationally. So every market that we go into, they're a supporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they launched us in Atlanta with Cortland. And I think they had the same question as you, which is like, when are we coming to DC? Yeah. And, and for me, I didn't want to launch DC without something that I thought was unique and that could help us scale. Uh, and so I needed something else. And so Howard gave me that something else and a big something else. And that they gave me the talent base to bring into real estate. Uh, and so we've now, we're about to launch our second. Uh, so we do programming every single semester. It's structured as an internship program. The shift that you see over time is that we just more formalize the fact that students earn a stipend by doing the work and they're working with real companies uh, as in an internship format. And so we'll be doing our second semester with Howard. Uh, Equity Residential is a partner there. Madison International Realty is a partner there. So DC over time, I think will become, you know, our largest market because there's 
there's so many wonderful real estate firms that are here. There's so many wonderful real estate entrepreneurs that are here. And there's a talent base that's incredible, both at Howard, at George Washington, at Georgetown, you name it. The other piece is high school. So, you know, we're going to train over 100 high school students this semester in Washington, D.C. And so high school is going to become a massive market for us. And D.C. is going to become probably the most consistent uh, city where we have high school and college programs connected, right? So this semester, you know, we'll train 100 high school. We'll do another 50 or so uh, that are in college in D.C. And I think that will grow in lockstep every semester. That's why I believe we'll become one of our biggest markets, because there is corporate support to do both of those on a regular basis. Well, when you and I met, we met at the Urban Land Institute headquarters. Mm. And mm. ULI has a program that I think you're now familiar with that of course, uh, I've been involved with called Urban Plan. It's now yeah. a national program as well. Mm. And it comes at it from more of a land use planning perspective for yep. a redevelopment of an urban marketplace. It seems to me that your, your program has now evolved to the point where there could be a great synthesis there between those two programs. And I'm hoping that that can evolve over time, mm. potentially. And here in Washington, we're looking to grow that significantly and have currently, I think, about six or seven high school partners that, that were involved with, plus George Mason University. Mm. So it might be a way to marry the, your program with theirs, hopefully, uh, over, over, over time. Because, uh, you know, the disciplines are different in that it's more of a planning yeah, perspective than uh, a deal-doing perspective. So to me, they cross over considerably. <laughs> so it, it makes a lot of sense to sometime grow that together, I would hope. I think there's a big opportunity there. We just got to go and do it, right? So, I mean, uh, I'm mm -hmm. a big doer and I, I, you know, I have an urgency to everything I do. And so I think there's just a question of finding an opportunity to go out and execute a partnership. Uh, and then I think it will, uh, I think it will scale nationally without question. Well, I'd like to get involved in that. So we, you and I will talk about that as we go forward here because uh, that's a mission that I have as far as, you know, inspiring young people. It's been my thrust for several years now. Um, so let me shift for a moment. And yeah. network, networking is, is such an important part of this and any business. How would you recommend young people to start and build a network in the industry? I use a couple of things. One, you have so many tools today. Right. I mean, like LinkedIn is a pretty incredible tool for building a network. I mean, so I would tell every young person first, you should do Project Destin. That's a great way to build, you know, a, a network because you get a chance to work with folks. Um, I think there's a couple of ways uh, if, you know, and we, we should define what young people mean. I mean, I think if you're in college, I think being of service is an incredible way to network. I mean, um, you know, I, um, I partnered in launching, you know, my first kind of social impact endeavor you know, out of college. And what I learned is that in volunteering your time with other well-intentioned folks, you begin to build a network and it just grows over time. People love inviting you to dinner parties if you share a common social interest. So I think volunteering is an incredible way to do it. Uh, getting involved in programs like the ones I've mentioned, like, you know, the Harvard, you know, Summer Venture Management Program and any program, frankly, you know, I think part of my success was taking risk on programs. And so just volunteering your time, getting involved, and then, you know, um, really getting to organizing time to have coffee with folks, uh, I think is an important one. The other piece is learning how to write. 
I, I've always thought, you know, part of my strength was that like I could write a good note, whether that was sort of a, a handwritten note or whether that was an email note, uh, just a short note to follow up with someone and with a call to action at the end, you know, can we get together for coffee and talk about our shared interest? Uh, and then when you get together, you try and build the next connect point of connection by saying, is there anyone you'd recommend that I meet? I think these are all ways, but now you have LinkedIn to where once you connect with someone on LinkedIn, you know, you get the benefit of all of their network. I would say the foundation to all of this is having a purpose and a goal with the network. So for me today, I'm meeting folks with the goal of bringing them into our community to grow our work. And so when I meet someone, I'm always saying to them, like, how can I get you involved in some aspect of our work? So that's my call to action. Uh, So I think those are really the ways, one, having a purpose, two, being of service, uh, and then finding a common point of interest and having a call to action. So as you're each of the students that come into your Project Destined programs, Mm. I assume you build a template for networking and teamwork and that kind of thing. Is that part of your uh, process, getting them, you know, motivated and confident enough to reach out Mm. in the community? Of course. I mean, um, you know, part of, yeah, so, so one, we give them the scaffolding uh, of the support infrastructure or templates to be able to go out and do it. Then we give them a call to action to do it. Uh, I'm a big believer that um, there are a lot of things that I'm not good at today, but I think if I just practice them, I will become great at them. And I think that's come over time for me in seeing patterns. But one of the things that we make students do is you got to go and do things that are a little bit uncomfortable, but are right for your growth. And then if you just keep practicing and doing things over and over again, what will happen is that you'll become a better math student, you'll become a better writer, uh, and you will do it by just repetition. So we teach them to we teach them a lot of process and repetition to doing things that may be initially uncomfortable. But through repetition, you'll become great at it. And the analogy is sports. I mean, like you don't grow up, you know, and you immediately become, you know, a great passer or a great dribbler. Uh, or a great three-point shooter, but it's just putting in reps. The same goes for everything that's academic and especially in business. You just got to put in some reps. And our program is really grounded in reps with professionals who are really backing your growth. So networking is critical to uh, being successful in this industry, it seems. So how do we change the mindsets to accentuate differences among people, Mm. highlighting their strengths as contributing people to both business and society. How do we change those mindsets? So my approach is um, Project Destiny. I mean, if I were to define the work that we do, it's, it's really project-based mentoring. I mean, we use a live deal project where students are working with executives to really engage them. So what I mean by like, when you, when you support a Project Destiny team, let's just say you're a local company, you're supporting 10 students uh, there's going to be, you know, five to six mentors, a few from a local business school, a few from your company, and they're going to go through a 10-week process of analyzing a live deal. Uh, every two weeks, there's a competition, right? So students, every two weeks, they're going to learn something, apply it, and present it and compete, right? So if you're a team PGM Real Estate and you're a team Heinz and you're a team Aria, like you're going to be backing 10, 10 students. Uh, They're going to work on a live project that you select, so likely one of your projects. And every two weeks, they go through a lecture by our team, office hours with your executives, and then they're going to present something. And the judges are going to be everyone from Rick Clark to Bill Rudin to all kind of leading executives in real estate. And so if you're Heinz or PGM Real Estate, you've got to actively participate 
in training those students about something you know a lot about, which is this deal. And what we have found is there is amazing bonds that are built because you've got a project. What's not happening very clearly is that there's no babysitting in our work. Because students have a short time period, two weeks, to put together a pitch on a small topic, you've got to fully engage and you've got to get beyond any differences and achieve an outcome through these talented, ambitious students. And what we have found is that there's this amazing relationship that develops because you've got a short fuse project. And so by the end of it, if you're a PG in real estate, here's what's happened. One, you've seen a bunch of new talent, 10 students from Howard or George Washington that you've sponsored, right? Two, you've really gotten to know them because every two weeks you win, lose, or draw, and then you got to do it again. So you get tons of reps together, right? And also you've learned something about yourself because you can't just say, go do it. You got to work with them to do it and understand. So you've had to give of yourself to achieve this outcome, but through these talented folks. So what we have found is that you build this amazing bond and we use what has always driven real estate, which is familiarity. Real estate is very much focused on de-risking through familiarity, which is I'm going to hire my buddy's son, not because he's the most talented, because I know my buddy, I know his son for 18 years, and I know I can teach him. I know the roots that he comes from, right? The familiarity. So all that I'm doing is I'm creating that familiarity in a short time fuse. And I'm giving real estate firms 10 weeks to observe new talent in a controlled environment that I'm creating, right? It's all structured by us. Uh, but you get the benefit of seeing this talent. But by the way, you're competing against four other teams. So you're seeing other talent who are going through the same process. So now if you're a team PG in real estate and you've got to hire for your sophomore internship program, right? One, you want to hire from team PG in real estate, but also if 10 other students come from Project Destin and you interview them, you know exactly what they've gone through, right? You have a complete sense of, you have a connection point. Right. So we tend to see a lot of our sponsors hire our talent because they've gotten to know our community over 10 weeks. They've seen our intensity, our urgency and the process that we've delivered talent. That's how we create that connectivity. So you've built a qualification tool for 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 students to to go and work in the public, in the sector, in the real estate sector. We've effectively built a type of certification. Right, which is right. that you are you're going through a shared experience that our mm-hmm. partners, corporate firms, believe in. So when they meet you, there's just a greater sense of familiarity for your commitment, your talent, and frankly, your tenacity. So do you see the pandemic affecting your growth and potential, either positively or negatively? Well, I think we got lucky a bit in that um, in 2019 we'd had a lot of success with Brookfield in, uh, in, in the Bronx. And we got the opportunity to launch in Los Angeles with, um, with Brookfield, with the Lakers, with Walker and Dunlap and Unibar Redomco Westfield. I wanted to launch London simultaneously because I wanted to prove that we could do a couple markets simultaneously, but also international markets. And so we had to use Zoom uh, for the training. So we did much of the training for those two markets via Zoom. And then it went so well that we ran another fall competition that was Zoom only, right? That ended on March, I think like 5th, right before the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit, you know, and people began using Zoom, we were very much practiced in using it. And so when New York canceled its summer youth employment program, you know, I, I got a call from a high school 
teacher. And there's a real benefit to, to get into to being a salesman for your business because it means you interact with all types of customers. And I gotten close to a few high schools and this one high school assistant principal called me and said, Cedric, New York has canceled or delayed its summer youth employment program. You know, do you have a way for our students to, um, to earn some money for the summer? I said, well, that's not how we're kind of structured. I said, let me make a few calls. And so I called Rick Clark from Brookline. I said, Rick, you know, what about if we structured our program to where there was a guaranteed stipend, not just these competitions, there was a guaranteed stipend that students got for going through the program. We would make it like, you know, kind of eight weeks successively. It would be intense. Would you sponsor a team? My wife and I will sponsor a team. Maybe we could get sort of 20 students in the game. Rick, who's been a pretty incredible partner, said, Cedric, you know, let's talk to the Real Estate Board of New York about doing this. And so we presented to the Real Estate Board of New York, you know, maybe like two weeks later. And within seven days, they agreed to sponsor 100 students with $150,000. So I give the Real Estate Board of New York credit for our expansions post-pandemic. We have tripled in size since the pandemic because the Real Estate Board of New York were like, this could really work. We will back you. They gave me the benefit of the doubt. And we trained 100 students that summer. They committed to another 150 in the fall. So it went from me not really knowing them to us training 250 students over the post-pandemic. And now we're doing it again this summer. But what it did more importantly is I got calls from folks in Los Angeles, in Charlotte, in Atlanta, who were like, well, why don't we do that again? You know, and why don't we do that in our city? And so the Real Estate Board of New York really gave us the foundation for growing post-pandemic. And so I'll give you the, the numbers. We trained 300 students in our first three years that my wife and I funded, right? Since 2018, well, this year, sorry, we've done 600, right? Right. We'll do 300 this semester, right, between high school uh, and college. So to go from doing 300 over three years to 300 this semester is pretty remarkable. That's driven by the pandemic in the sense of people accept virtual training in a very different way than they did before the pandemic. And so I give credit to the Real Estate Board of New York for making a bet on us and to Rick Clark for always letting us borrow his street credit. So in essence, this platform of online virtual allows you to scale your business probably at a at a uh, almost geometrically compared to what you yes. could on the ground i would think yes uh, the question is yes. how do you take that on the job training practical piece mm. and scale that at the same time and so that gets into my question about growing mm. your company from an infrastructure standpoint because mm. you need people to do this i'd assume mm. so are you building infrastructure in your local cities now to have actual, you know, people doing the work that needs to be done? Yeah. So a couple of things. Well, you know, starting um, last March, I shifted our workforce to where it's all alumni of our program. So all of my employees are alums. So I've got 26 folks that work for us and they're all former students. And that'll be our model, um, you know, for, I mean, as long as we can. And so the shift for me is that if you think about the way we're structured, it's, um, you know, to borrow a term from a recent book, it's like a team of teams in the sense of I have all these little teams around the country. So, for example, uh, when, you know, uh, JLL says to me, we're going to sponsor a team, you know, in Miami, you know, I take one of my alums, uh, we go and we go to Florida A&M and FIU and Miami-Dade and we recruit 10 students. It's going to be managed by, you know, one of my alums. That's the team. 
right? And we're going to layer on top of that some, you know, volunteers from JLL who are sponsoring that team. That's kind of the team that's going to be Team JLL in Miami. And this semester we'll have, you know, 30 of those teams, but they're all going to be led by my alumni because my alumni understand the culture. They also are most concerned about the brand because they're using that brand today to get jobs. And so they have no problem holding not the students accountable, the volunteers accountable to a certain standard for delivering our work. So the infrastructure that we are building is largely driven by my alumni uh, who are leading small teams, frankly, around the country and hopefully soon around various parts of the world. So that's our playbook. We'll continue to execute that playbook. There is a, a middle tier of division managers who are also alums who really manage the operations uh, behind those teams and giving those teams the support that they need. I would say the common thread to it all is that you're going through our technology, you're going through our learning platform where both building the language, but also we're connecting tons of data, collecting tons of data on how you learn. So as we begin training you using Zoom today, right, we have a ton of information about how you learn. Those elements of team of teams, strong division, divisional managers who understand our fabric, and then the underlay of technology is what's driving our scale today. So tell us a few stories about your graduates. I mean, you've only been in existence five years now, roughly. Mm. Are there any graduate stories that you could share of of people that you've trained that have gone on to careers or successes in the industry? Yeah, I mean... I mean, there's a, there's a ton of stories. I'll give you a few that um, I mm-hmm. think sort of give you a sense of what drives the work. So I'll give you the story of Matthew Kinsey, you know, a student at Renaissance High School. We meet him when he's in 10th grade. He's in our first class at Project Destin, goes through the program. He's from a quite entrepreneurial family uh, where I think he leaves the program and he's trying to invest in deals on his own. We launched in D.C. this fall. Who applies to my program? Matthew Kinsey. Right. He's already accepted a summer internship at eBay, but he's curious about how data analytics that he's been learning applies to real estate. So he does our program in the fall and he's going to have offers from everyone in real estate because he's done. He has such great exposure to real estate. He's got a great sort of entrepreneurial spirit and he's at a great university. So the idea of why do we choose high school? Because just like in sports, you can't wait till the talent is a senior you know, in college and begin teaching them basketball. You got to start early. So teaching him in that first class out of Renaissance, then him coming to Howard, and now he's going to go off and have a great career in technology or in real estate. That is the power of our work. The other example I would use is, you know, a guy, Miles Franklin, you know, who's in our first class in Memphis. He's just finishing 12th grade and he goes on, you know, to work at Artemis at Brookfield. He'll be at Heinz in New York this summer. And it's just the fact that this is a 12th grader out of Memphis who will have four in who will have four internships at leading real estate firms before he graduates. And that kind of pedigree used to be limited, you know, to a small set of folks whose families were in real estate. And now we're democratizing it and creating opportunities for the tenacious. I mean, those are the kinds of stories that, you know, that get me super excited. The final one I would say is PGM Real Estate. I mean, again, they came in with a very specific focus is they wanted to identify talent you know, through our program for their sophomore internship program. They sponsor a team of 10 students. They've got, a, they've got probably 20 mentors who engage in our program. And at the end of the program, within 48 hours, 
they hire two of our students. By the way, some of the folks interviewing them had been mentors to those students. And so you can imagine you as a student, you walk into the interview and two folks that have been helping you learn real estate are now interviewing you. This is something you didn't think that was for you or possible, but now familiarity is working for you, not against you. Those are the examples that I think are really meaningful. So what is your big, big dream for Project mm. Destined, uh, Cedric? Do you see this going beyond the real estate investment business? I mean, into other aspects of industry, or do you want to stay in real estate? With this? I, mean, I, think, I think anywhere where there's a gap between companies who are challenged with diversity today uh, or talent, challenged with talent, frankly, you know, today who just don't know how to get there, they know they need a partner. I think we're a great partner for them because we can bring the talent and kind of marry those two together. So I think in real estate, it's most stark today because I think you're starting from a very from a very low base. There's a big opportunity for it. But this semester, you know, uh, we're actually partnering with a commercial bank to do the same thing for commercial banking, right? So I think that we're going to see opportunities in a range of different verticals. Frankly, most companies, whether you look at technology or you look at real estate, or you look at private equity, or you look at commercial banking, they all struggle with it. It's stark in real estate today, but all the major industry verticals struggle with it. And so I think that we'll have a chance to expand to a number of verticals. I think real estate will always be the lead for us. And I think we'll grow real estate around the world. I think if we're not in if we're not meaningfully in Europe with a presence in Asia by this time next year, I'd be pretty disappointed. So I think real estate will begin to go global across all major markets. And then I think we'll begin to expand into new verticals. The other piece that I think um, will support our scale is that now today, you know, we've got four accredited courses, right? So in four of our markets, students get academic credit for doing our program. So CUNY, you know, Johnson C. Smith, North Carolina Central, Florida A&M. And so I think we'll see more and more universities that look to us and say, hey, you all could bring real estate curriculum. You could bring employers. The students earn a stipend. Why wouldn't we give our students a chance to earn academic credit? And so I think that's the other piece is that I think we'll more and more universities will let us build programs for them. So those are the three areas in which I think we'll see you know, tremendous growth over the next few years. Will Howard do it here in, in Washington? Are you? I think we've got a good. I think we've got a good shot. I mean, when when the developer called us way back in 2020 in June, the goal was for us to to partner with them in helping build um, an additional sort of accredited real estate course at um, at Howard. So I'm I've spent some time, you know, with um, you know with the president of the university. We've talked to administration. I hope that we'll get a shot to build an accredited course uh, at Howard. So we're hoping we'll get that shot. I know if we get it, we will uh, we'll do a great job. But I think we'll get a chance to do it at a number of historically black colleges around the country. What were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career beyond just Project Destined, even going back to your youth, et cetera? I think the biggest you know, win was when um, you know, I recognized, or in my mind, I thought I deserved to go to Harvard Business School. I mean, I think that was just a, a big transition point. I think my mother and I drafted a playbook to get to Harvard when I was, you know, 17 or 18. And I drafted the playbook. I'm not sure I thought I would get there. I didn't think I had the belief I wanted to. I think it was somewhere after I finished Oxford where I thought like that's going to become real. So I think that that, I think that gap of going from that dream to reality, I think just gave me a certain confidence that I could do something I was committed to. 
biggest losses. I mean, like, heck, I remember interviewing at McKinsey as a senior in, uh, in college, and I had read every book about Marvin Bowers that was possible. I had not done the research to prepare for a McKinsey interview. And I think that when I didn't get the job, that kind of hit me hard. I, I hadn't been rejected before, but I hadn't prepared adequately. So it just taught me something powerful. Like, you know, you can go and read about people, but you got to really understand the foundations of the role and the job. That really hit me hard. And so that was a big loss. It hurt, but it hurt in a good way because I was able to recover from it. In terms of like, you know, favorite stories, I mean, um, yeah, there's this wonderful experience I had at Carlisle where I really wanted to invest in the rail sector. I mean, heck, everyone in private equity did. Uh, I didn't know how to do it. And I remember, you know, I had this wonderful investment banker, Craig Fuhrer, who, you know, who was a partner in crime. And I remember calling him like every week saying, you got to help me find a rail deal. And I remember the day he called me and said, there is this opportunity coming. I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but you should get on it. And I remember when I just said to him, like, can you just introduce me to the CEO so I could just go and meet with him? And it was the first time, you know, in my private equity career, you know, I'd had this dream and then someone kind of laid out an opportunity, but there were no guarantees. But then I chased it down. So a year later, you know, we invested $350 million into that rail company. It doubled in value in almost a year. It was my biggest financial win in, in my life. And I remember just the fact that like I had to have faith that I could create something. And so it was just like, he called me, he gave me no guarantees. And it was just the idea that like, I took the call, I chased it down. I spent hours putting together a pitch book for why Carlisle, why us. We went there, they got excited, they gave us a shot and we crushed it. And I think it was just that experience of like, just again, like Harvard, like dreaming of something. And then when you got the shot, just attacking it with urgency and relentlessness, like that just, just stuck with me. Like I just saw that pattern. And frankly, everything in my life since then has been replicating that. Here's the best part. Brookfield went and bought that business uh, a year and a half ago. And so now they're saying railroads owned by Brookfield. And so it's just kind of funny to see how your worlds collide. Small world. So what are your life priorities among family work and giving back, Cedric? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a, I'm a pretty intense worker. I'm a pretty intense parent. I have a life partner, my wife, who's known me since I was, you know, a runt. She's just been phenomenal. So in terms of priorities, well, I'll say what I've tried to do. I have tried to choose a career today that engages and involves my family. And if anything that the pandemic has done, it's allowed me to do it more often with my family. And so my priority will always be my wife and my son's. What underpins it uh, is my ability to choose a career that is giving us the financial stability and a chance to create these amazing family experiences, right? So my family, we, we live in London every summer together and we know every summer we're going to do it. And they know I've got to work my butt off. Uh, my wife has to work our butts off to, to be able to achieve it. And so to be able to show my sons during the pandemic, like, I got to be a great dad. I got to be a great husband. I also got to be great at my job because we want to have these incredible experiences and they come as a result of hard work. That integration has, you know, I haven't always achieved that balance, but today that integration works tremendously well. My sons see how hard we work every day. And so when we go on vacations, they see it's the result of a lot of hard work and it's like a virtuous cycle. Uh, so the priority is always, is always family, my wife, my sons, 
Uh, but what underpins it is the ability to do this job that I loved. I've loved, you know, since I was in my 20s uh, that creates wealth for my family. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Separate. Buy real estate, never sell it. I mean, like, it's, I mean, it's what I've done. I mean, I've never sold a piece of real estate, buy it. Uh, I mean, so what I would give my, the advice I would give, you know, is, um, you know, don't be afraid to be afraid. I mean, like, um, there's a certain fear, fearlessness that's required to be successful. And I think when you look at your goals versus where you are, there is, um, there, you're going to have to be courageous to get there. And so as you reach, you know, different, different sort of hurdles along the way, just be fearless in attacking those hurdles. Because if you are timid, the hurdle may win. If you are fearless, you give yourself a shot to crush it. Uh, and so to me, it's, um, it's recognizing fear, and then just blowing through it by not being afraid uh, of the fear. That's the advice that I would give myself. And uh, it's the advice that I still follow today. That's great. That's great. So if you could post a statement on a billboard mm. on the Capitol Beltway or any place that's seen by millions of people, what would it say, Cedric? I mean, there's two answers. I mean, one, because I'm a salesman, I would say, join us. I mean, like, join Project Destiny. That would be the first thing. But the second thing is that um, I would say is, you know, be an owner. I mean, I just, I don't care what anyone tells you about what you should pursue in your career. You know, you you need to pursue being an owner. I think it's, uh, I wanted to do this conversation, I think you know, on MLK Day. Uh, it's a very important day for me. I, I always listen to Letter from Birmingham Jail every morning on MLK Day. And I think many people forget that at the end of, of, of his phenomenal life, he was focused on, you know, economic participation. And I think that um, people can give you all the talk in the world. There's all kinds of words swirling now post, uh, post Minneapolis. But the word I would say is become an owner. Advocate through ownership. Because if you can control and influence assets in your neighborhood, I think you're going to have a much larger imprint on how your community uh, evolves. So I would say become an owner is something I would put on a billboard. And I want people to go and Google what it means, but certainly to go and seek it. So on that note, Cedric, thank you very much mm. for your participation today when, in the discussion here on Icons. And you left an impression. There's no question. And I thank you for your time. Ah, thank you. This has been an absolute uh, Absolute pleasure. I, I, I hope to report back in a few years that uh, DC is in fact our largest market so I can, uh, I can honor my commitment. So we just listened to Cedric Bobo and his Project Destined uh, process. And I am now bringing on my sidekick, Tom Amos. Tom, welcome. Thanks, John. Another great recording here. And uh, one thing I wanted to clarify for the guest was Cedric had talked about a inspirational movie that he had watched in 2016 that kind of jump-started Project Destined, and, and that movie was Destined, so hence hence the name for the company. And it, it's, a, it's a story about a young man from Detroit that kind of lives out two realities. One, where you know he, he's a drug dealer, and, and another is a successful architect. I, I watched a short little movie trailer last night on it and um, definitely have it on my list of things to, to watch. It, it looks like a really great one. So one to let the listeners know that that's what uh, Cedric was talking about. Some information about Project Destin. From their website, they've raised $250,000 in scholarships. 
that have been earned by students for the live deal pitch competitions that that he covered. And 70% of the students had secured internships, full-time job opportunities, and or earned certi- certifications um, there after, after enrolling with their program. So some really great numbers, tremendous what they're doing, and really puts into context for myself, you know, starting to think about you know, ways that you can get involved and, and give back to to um, younger individuals. You know, the other thing that really stuck, John, listening to to the podcast was, you know, the benefits of of getting individuals involved at a younger age. And and I love that concept. I, I think that me myself, I, I worked for an engineering firm in their survey department in high school, which wasn't a common thing to be afforded to people to be able to work for you know, a large corporation, you know, 16 years old, but it, it opened a lot of doors for me, myself, and and really shaped me into kind of the career that, that I, I landed on. I think that that's great that Project Destin has, has, has done that. And I think that um, I'd love to see more companies, you know, move to getting students involved at a younger age. And, and I'm hoping that even construction who I work for, you know, that we can we can try to get people on board at an earlier age and 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 help them develop their career at a at an earlier age. Yeah, Cedric's program is uh, pretty interesting, and uh, it's a pretty rigorous program that analyzes, you know, allows young people to uh, learn the basics of. It's mostly mathematics initially of understanding what an investment means and what it is. So he gets into the classroom with a curriculum, and then he gets them out on site to understand what value is and how to create it. Not physically doing it, but at least seeing how it is physically done. And then they prepare a pitch for their own project that they have to assemble and put that together. So everything's geared up to to aiming towards this pitch to understand the process. And then some pretty senior people in each of the markets where they're in have sat and listened to the pitches and, and you know, basically done it. So Shark Tank type approach, which I think is a really cool thing because it gives them a sense of being on stage and gives them presentation skill, ability, the analytical side, and then they get a critique from yeah. very senior seasoned professionals. And high school, that's a pretty exciting, enthusiastic thing. And some of the reactions of the children have been fantastic. So he's rolling out here in Washington uh, this year later on. Hopefully uh, the pandemic doesn't slow down the implementation, but I think they're using Howard University as a, as a, as a kind of a base for that. But they're aiming at some high schools here in, in Washington, and I haven't really identified those yet with him. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, he actually is uh, on a panel uh, at ULI by the time this is heard will have already happened a couple of weeks ago, but uh, so Cedric is getting himself out there in in the Washington community and he's been in multiple markets already. So it's been quite a, quite a program. And uh, just to, to, to let the listeners know, I've been involved in what's known as urban plan, which is a ULI program, which is aiming more at the, at, uh, at is also aiming at the high school level, usually juniors and seniors, learning how to plan a community and not invest specifically in, but uh, development scheme planning. It's a little more sophisticated, 
mm-hmm. than, than Cedric's program, but it, it's analogous in that it's engaging young people in the high school level to uh, get into the into the real estate business. Yeah, I, I think it's great. And I hope that um, some of the listeners reach out and try to get involved with that. I, I think it's a, a great program that they have there. So anything else, Tom? That's all I got. Okay. Listeners, thank you for joining me today on the program. And um, just want to say, uh, if you have any comments or any thoughts about uh, this episode or any other episode, please uh, uh, write me at uh, john at coenterprises.com or leave a comment on my website, coenterprises.com, either way. And I'll look forward to that. And if you if you uh, have any people that you'd like me to interview that you feel strongly about, I'm, I'm welcome to suggestions. So thank you again for listening and have a good day. <laughs>